I invite you then to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. We come to chapter 13. You'll find it on page 213 in the church Bibles. Judges chapter 13. And this is the beginning of the well-known story of Samson. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 25. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Father God, we do thank you for your word. We pray that it would do its work among us. Your promise is that your word would not return to you empty, but would accomplish that which you have designed for it to do. May that be the case today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, Judges chapter 13 and beginning at verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but... You shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went to his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. 
Now Manoah and his wife were watching. They fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, and then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. I don't know whether you've been in a situation where you felt that you were really quite good at something and then someone else comes along and they're so much better at it than you that it almost freaks you out. For instance, say you like to play chess. Let's just imagine for the sake of argument for a moment that you do. And you've been getting quite good at it. You've been practicing for a while, a few years. It's become a significant hobby of yours. And you've become so good at it that you've decided to enter competitions around chess. And you're actually starting to win those competitions. And so you go to some national uh, um, gathering of chess aficionados. And there you are in the hotel waiting for your next, next uh, chess match. And... A 10-year-old boy wanders up to you and says, would you like to play chess? And you think, well, I'll humor the young lad and give him a game. And he beats you. Not only does he beat you, he beats you easily several times over. It was no fluke. And the 10-year-old protege wanders off to find his next victim. Have you ever had an experience like that where you think you're good at something and then suddenly someone comes along who's so much better at it than you that it almost freaks you out? What kind of person is this? Uh, I, I, I remember that when I was, uh, I used to play, as you know, I played a number of different sports at not a particularly high level, but I enjoyed it. And I remember I went to one semi-professional rugby training session just to figure out what the level was and I remember warming up with these other athletes and just looking at them and thinking okay here's a whole different league plus they had no teeth which wasn't great either <laughs> sort of if you ever had that situation maybe you think you're good at basketball and you're playing in the college church gym and suddenly some guy wanders in who's six foot ten. And just, then you find out afterwards he's from the NBA. A different league. One of the biggest challenges we face with coming to grips with who God is is that we put him in our league. 
I know God became a baby and was born of a man. And, but we have tended to sentimentalize God. Domesticate God. And here's Manoah who thinks he sees God. He doesn't write a new song to send it off to Nashville to make a whole bunch of money out of the experience he had when he encountered God. He thinks he's going to die because he saw God. It's a whole different league, this God person. And here in this story, as we get into the beginning of the story of Samson, the last of the judges in the book of Judges, the author of this book is telling us that, to use the words of A.W. Tozer, the famous Chicago preacher, we, don't have, we, have, a, we have someone who is not a Tozer fan over there, Um, God is always previous. He's always before. He's always ahead of the game. He's in an entirely different league. He leads. We follow. Let's see how this story not only helps us grasp that thought, but apply it to the practicalities of our lives. He leads, we follow, because God is always previous. First, he leads. Well, it is quite remarkable, isn't it, when you see this story here in, in front of us, uh, we're told that the, the people of Israel have messed up yet again. And this has gone on for a long time. It's gone for 40 years. So it's the bottom of the ninth, and there's no way they're going to win the game, and it's really bad. And then God shows up. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, nobody's. The wife could not have any children. And God intervenes. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, God's always previous. We're not told that they spent two months fasting and praying to try to get to God to do something. He just showed up. She clearly was not expecting it. I mean, the rest of the chapter is them trying to wrestle with this idea of what on earth is happening to us. He just steps in. You get the same sort of thought of God leading with this Nazarite vow. Uh, If you want to look it up afterwards, the background to this is Numbers chapter 6, where 
the definition is God is given by God in, in the law of what it means to be a Nazarite. And the, the elements here indicated no wine or strong drink, not allowed to touch animals, not allowed to cut your hair, all of which those of us who know the story of Samson will know that he broke each of them with some regularity and most famously, especially the hair cutting one. Uh, It's always somewhat amused me, by the way, that those people who are against Christian men having long hair, I'm not sure what they do with Samson, but anyway, perhaps they should grow their hair longer, I, I don't know. But here's the Nazarite vow with a twist. In Numbers chapter 6, it is voluntary. And it is temporary. But here, it's for the whole of Samson's life. And he didn't choose it, it was chosen for him. God is always previous. He defines the terms. He sets the agenda. He intervenes. He does this. He, he, he's active. He's on the move. He's, he's always previous. He's leading. It's so easy for us to domesticate God, to make God a theory or a philosophy or a culture even. God's not a theory or philosophy or culture. He exists. He is. He does things, you know. Still today, he's always previous. He's always ahead of the game. He's an entirely different league. It's so easy for us to give mere lip service to the power, omniscience, omnipotence, awesome reality of God. Don't you find it? We... we you go to a prayer meeting or you, you, you have something on your mind that you pray to God about and then you find yourself five minutes later having given it to God, now you're worrying about it. Or you hear some sermon that is appealing for a missionary cause or some fundraiser or something and you decide, yes, I'm going I'm to give my money to that missionary cause and then you find yourself really concerned about your finances. How small is our God so often? I think you see this dynamic playing out all the time in Christian culture among conversations today about atheism, for instance. There was a famous book published some while ago by an atheistic scientist called The God Delusion. Of course, the irony of that is, from a biblical point of view, the one who's deluded is the author of that book, The God Delusion. God is not a, a mere figment of our imagination. God, if anything, is the other way around. We're a projection of his word, 
Since before the creation of the world, he has known us. I know, I know, there are all sorts of scholarly debates and scientific questions and textual questions about the authority of the Bible. But at the end of the day, having thought about a number of those different things over the years as I have, I'm on the side of C.H. Charles, Charles Spurgeon who said one time, defend the Bible, I'd rather defend a lion. God is, God is active. He's on the move. He is, to use the terms of C.S. Lewis, the divine interferer. We don't control him. We don't need a fear for the future of, of, of the church, of the future of the Christian movement, the future of the evangelical movement. We don't need a fear for that. I, I've always loved how Jonathan Edwards, on his deathbed, the, the great Edwards with Christian leaders gathering around him, knowing that he was about to die, and he overheard them saying, what is going to happen to the church? And he looked up, and one of the last things he said was, trust in God, and ye need have no fear. God is always previous. He has a plan for you. You're here for a reason. He has a mission for you. So yes, uh, parents, dedicate yourselves to raise your children in the way of the Lord. I suppose if there is a practical application of the Nazarite vow, that might be it. But note the point that it's God's doing. He's previous. He leads And then we are called to follow, which is, of course, what Mr. and Mrs. Manara do to their credit. They must have been so surprised when they had this angel turn up uh, and announce that she was going to have a baby. And then she tells her husband, doesn't she, doesn't she? And then he's trying to follow as well. He's trying to figure it out. He's got a lot of different questions about it. And he, he asks God, uh, verse 8, to send the man again to tell us more, so to teach us how to train the child. He's got a lot of questions. It's fine, fine to have questions when you're attempting to figure out how to follow God. Uh, Manoah had questions. He's not rebuked for it. Tell us how to do it. Show us the way. He's, he's seeking that he might find. He's asking uh, that he might receive. But he's attempting to follow. He wants to, uh, verse 15, make a nice meal for this person who's turned out to tell them this without realizing that the person is the angel of the Lord, the very presence of God himself. What is your name that you, when your words come, we, we, true, we may honor you. He's trying to follow where God leads, not knowing, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? That is, it's the name of God himself. And then, when he builds the altar and makes the sacrifice, and somehow mysteriously, the angel of the Lord ascends in the flame, he realizes that he has seen God.
And he's right to be feared. He's corrected by his wife. His wife rightly understands that though it is good to fear God, that actually God is a gracious and loving God and has a good intention for them. But this, our God, my friends, is an awesome God. And we are not to trivialize him, nor to sentimentalize him, nor to domesticate him, nor are we to give lip service to him. We are to follow him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you're thinking, okay, this is the moment when the preacher gets really excited and asks me to follow Jesus, and then I have to decide whether I want to. It's not me you have to bargain with. It's the living God. In this sacrifice of worship, with the presence of God here, with him leading, will we follow? Now, I have great empathy for many people today because the, the idea of God, the, the, the message about God has become so trivialized in so many churches and in so many publications and in so much media and in so much of the conversation today that it's, it's just hard for us to get our minds around the kind of God who is, the, the kind of God who is big and, and great and powerful and yet loving and yet wants you and yet gave his son for you. It is hard for us to even begin to think like that. We've been sold over and over again this power of positive thinking sort of idea, using the phrase of Norman Vincent Peale from yesterday. I always enjoy what D.A. Carson one time quipped about Norman Vincent Peale. He said, Peale was appalling, but the apostle Paul was appealing. The same sort of idea keeps on rearing its ugly head. Listen to these words for one popular book. You, talking to the, uh, the reader of the book, you are God in physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are eternal life expressing itself as you. Extraordinary. But this is the sort of thing we like to hear. If you just conceptualize the future enough, with enough positivity, you, you believe in yourself, trust yourself. Uh, the, the book carries on. The, orth, the earth turns on its orbit for you. The oceans ebb and flow for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. No matter who you thought you were, uh, it, it, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe. You are the heir of the kingdom. You are the perfection of life. And now you know the secret, the end of that multi-million dollar selling book. No, that's not the secret. The secret is God is always previous. Not as a philosophy, not as a set of moral codes that may be good for society or church or individual lives, but as the real God who is here by his spirit, 
who you can meet and have your life radically transformed by that encounter as Mr. and Mrs. Manoa discovered. He leads, we follow. They followed, and the baby was, uh, was born. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And yet now, of course, I'm not quoting from Judges. I'm quoting from the Gospel of Luke about Jesus. For Samson, with all his massive failures, as we'll discover, is mirroring the true Savior to come. When God primarily and finally intervenes. To save. I've always liked the quip of a southern preacher from Dallas, Texas, who the week previous to the Sunday morning, an atheist astronaut had gone up into the heavens and said he looked around the heavens. He'd gone in outside of the Earth's atmosphere. He'd gone into the heavens. He looked around the heavens, and he could report there was no God. And this then-renowned southern preacher from Dallas, Texas, in his pulpit, recounted that well-known event and said, well, if that astronaut had, had uh, taken off his helmet, he would have seen God. <laughs> God has come. He has sent his Spirit. And he is coming back. The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Samson made a good beginning with this promise from God. He made a dramatic end. And in between there are a lot of ups and downs. But in this passage this morning we're presented with a vision of God who is always previous and because God is bigger and better and before everything and everyone he calls us to follow to leave our idols our self-centered devotion to us being God To actually be willing to lay down, if not our lives, at least our schedule to squeeze, squeeze five minutes a day to spend time with God. To actually be willing, if uh, not to give up our bodies, at least to sacrifice our priorities to make it to church on time each Sunday. To actually be willing, if not to surrender our reputation, at least our fear of what our friends will say to us when we invite them to church. 
In other words, to follow where he leads. God is not sitting up in heaven watching from a distance. Christ has come. His spirit is with us. He is here. And he's coming back. He's always always previous. He leads. Let us follow. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray you'd help us to follow where you lead. We thank you that you have intervened into our lives uh, in your son Jesus and by your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that nothing surprises you. And that, Lord, you are the kind of God who, after 40 years of your people suffering, steps in and saves. I pray, Lord, for those here this morning who don't yet know you, that you might now, by your Spirit, step in and save. Father, we pray for our family members or friends who don't yet know you. We pray by your supernatural power that even as we are gathered here this morning, you would step into their lives and save. Father, we bring before you that situation in our own individual lives that we find too big to surmount and it fills us with fears help us Lord to look up and see you with all your power and might and to leave that problem in your hands And so we pray, Lord, that the peace of God will go with us. We thank you, Lord, that you are real and not a figment of our imagination. Forgive us for so often treating you as merely a philosophy or a set of moral rules. We pray, Lord, that the tangible presence, your presence, here that we sense this morning would remind us of your reality even when we don't feel you close again Lord we thank you that you lead and we pray that we would follow in Jesus name Amen